Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It was the best of time. It was the worst she was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And the king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Hello and welcome to The Things That Made England. I'm Roy Field-Brown and with me I have my sometimes mucker. David Crowther, I'm here mucking. Who does a rather good podcast when he's not um, so messing true. around doing this called The History of England. That's uh, true. David, anybody that's a fan with my podcasting output knows that I'm somewhat left of centre. Yes, I've spotted that too. So it's through gritted teeth that I will... I have to nominate the Sun newspaper as one of the things that's made England in the last 50 years. Well, that's years, a bit of a nightmare, so. isn't it? Presumably you hate the Sun. Uh, hate would be a strong word, but okay. I have a grudging respect for some elements of what the Sun has managed to do. And I would say that the Sun, which is a tabloid newspaper, which is published in, of course, the United Kingdom, yep. um, really is the pulse of England. It's, it feels much more English than it does British because the Scots don't go so much in for the sun, and neither do the, the Northern Irish. And actually, you, you have read Scottish newspapers, though, have you? I have. Right. I have. Okay. I have. I Once quite or twice. Sunlight, aren't they? Well, there is the Scottish version called the Scottish Sun. There is. But just to underline this, so there is an edition, a regional edition, printed in Scotland, one in Northern Ireland, and actually one in the Republic of Ireland. But the Sun is English, and actually. There isn't a Welsh edition. Too nice in uh, Wales. Well, we could get onto a rather long and convoluted uh, discussion about Welsh identity, but you know, there's a reason why I would say that um, you know the Welsh have an assembly, but the Scots have a parliament. I was just going to say that the Welsh don't, are too nice to like the Sun newspaper. You've taken it places, you know, I wouldn't go without <laughs> shock <and> implement. <laughs> 
close to me. Why is Kylie called Bruiser? Why did Craig wear a dress? Alan's battle to marry his Miss Australia in the sun revealed the bizarre secrets of the neighbor stars. You've seen us all on television. Now read about our private lives. In the sun, plus free beer. The sun's giving away 25,000 home brew kits absolutely free. That's a million pints. In the sun this week. And stand by for Lotto 2. £152,000 to win. The biggest Lotto Bobo ever. Only in the sun tomorrow. Starting inside Monday's sun, don't miss your free Big Bucks Bingo Scratch Card. There are loads of cash prizes. A top prize of £50,000. Or free sessions at Gala Bingo. Everyone's a winner. Super smashing great. Scratch and match the numbers every day. Don't miss your free Big Bucks Bingo Scratch Card only inside Monday's Sun. We love it. That nice little woman down your street, underneath it all, she's one of the huntresses. This week, the Sun looks at a new breed of woman who no longer waits to be asked. Young and old, single and married, they all hunt their men and bring them back alive. Meet the huntresses in the Sun. Learn how to talk to your body to make it beautiful in the sun. And let them truckers roll. Find out what it's like in the world of the truck driver. Discover the secrets of their private code, learn their slang, and meet their girls in Go Trucker Go. All in your Super 5P Sun this week. So the Sun newspaper started life in 1964 as a broadsheet. So it was a, a big old newspaper. Is that and right? it was that yeah, right? I did not know it, that. It was the successor to the Daily Herald. It only became a tabloid in 1969 after it was purchased by News Group Newspapers, a, a subsidiary of News Corp. So the Sun previously had the largest circulation of any daily newspaper in the UK. Uh, and it held that title for approximately 30 years until earlier on this year when it was knocked off its perch by, by the Metro. And, and even now, it still has a, uh, an average daily circulation of 1.4 million copies sold throughout the United Kingdom. Now, throughout the it's, Guardian, it's the biggest sold newspaper. So it is bigger than The Guardian. Sorry, I was being funny. Do The Guardian still sell any, any newspapers? I, I thought you were being facetious. I said The Guardian is a trust, isn't it? And I forget who actually owns the trust. And they lose money every year. I'm not surprised. It's probably two people who read it now. One of them's no, Luke and the other's Well, you. no. Well, I read it online extensively. Right. And I've stopped being, I'll stop being rude about the grown ad now. Keep going. Please do. Please do. So what The Sun has done is to be involved in lots of controversies during its 50-odd years history as a tabloid. And one of the things, one of the controversies we're going to talk about today is the 1989 Hillsborough Football Stadium disaster, um, which has been significant, except in considering that heinous headline that they wrote in the aftermath of that tragedy. But in 1964, David, The Sun newspaper was born is published as a replacement for the Mirror Group's Daily Herald, which had been losing readers and revenue for years. And they said, you know what, we're going to give it a rebrand. Uh, it promised to follow a radical and independent agenda. And like its predecessor, it had strong parties to the Labour Party. It starts off being this really working class paper. The Mirror Group newspapers took ownership of the Herald in 1961. By 1969, the Sun, the broadsheet Sun, was losing £2 million a year, which is a lot of money now, let alone yeah, in 1969, and had a circulation of 800,000. So people were reading it, uh, but it was seen as being worthy, boring, leftish, and, you know, and a populist broadsheet. But it was just worthy. It was boring. Rupert Burdock came in and bought it, and... 
the year before, he'd bought a title called The News of the World, which was a populist Sunday tabloid newspaper. Which he'd bought. Oh, the News of the back. World makes the sun a quality, doesn't it? Mm, which he bought for £800,000. The Daily Herald had been printed up in Manchester up until that point. After Murdoch buys it, he basically moves the printing of it down to the Fleet Street area in London, which is the home of the UK press. Uh, the Sun recruits 125 reporters immediately when it becomes a tabloid. And it ran as a sister paper to the News of the World, which is very important because it kind of takes on the tone of the News of the World. And the first headline back in November the 17th of 1969 is Horse Dope Sensation. And that really sets the tone for the newspaper for the next 50 odd years. It's attention grabbing headlines. What and was the, the paper the headline again? Horse Dope Sensation. And the paper copied its circulation rival, the Daily Mirror, in several ways. It became the same size, it was a tabloid, and tabloid in the UK does physically mean the size, but also it, it's the tone of the newspaper. So it's very attention-grabbing. Indeed, yeah, although the, the Times, of course, now is a tabloid, isn't it? Tabloid in size. Yeah. Tabloid in size. Not in spirit. Um, but as well as being the same size as the Daily Mirror, because that was the, the, the high-selling newspaper at the time, it copied its masthead in terms of being read with right writing. That's very deliberate. So it was a, a bit of a mirror clone. And remember, it came out of the mirror's uh, stable some six years beforehand. But one of the totems of this newspaper was to be page three, where a topless model appeared with nothing but a smile, David. I'm sure... Is that right? Teenage David Crowther <laughs> would have a cheeky peek at page three. It's pitiful, Am I wrong? When you go and I had my hair done, when you go and get, go and get a haircut, there mm. was always Daily Mail sitting around. The question was, at the age of 12 or whatever it was, whether you dared sneak at page three. You mean there was a son? There was no sun at our home, I'm sorry to tell you that. <laughs> well, you know, there was Dad, no Mum and Dad in... didn't read the sun. Neither did my parents, always been mirror people. But Stephanie Rain was the first woman who appeared topless on page three in 1970 in the sun. And she was tagged as the birthday suit girl to mark that anniversary of the, of the relaunch of the paper. This is how influential Page 3 became as a part of English life. Sam Fox, I forget how many times yeah, she appeared on um, Page yeah. 3, and Linda Lasardi were two Page 3 girls that went on to become celebrities in their own right in the next two decades. Sam Fox had a TV career, became um, a pop star. Linda Lasardi was always on game shows and panel shows, etc. I never knew who Linda Lasardi was. I might actually look her up as we speak. Oh, lovely looking woman with, 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 uh, with dark brown hair. Big smile, uh, wavy hair. You'll know as soon as you see a picture right, whilst you Google her. The, the, the Page 3 model became a regular fixture with increasingly risque poses. Both feminists and cultural conservatives saw it as pornographic and misogynistic. You found page three girls' photos pinned up in mechanics garages the length and breadth of the country. Page three, whether you loved it or loathed it, it was a peculiarly English institution. Uh, politically, the Sun in the early Murdoch years was nominally supported Labour. So it remained true to its working class roots. 
Um, it advocated a vote for the Labour Party led by Harold Wilson in, in the 1970 election with the headline, Why It Must Be Labour. But by February 1974, it was calling for a vote for the Conservative Party led by Edward Heath. This was a totemic and seismic shift in allegiance that was to last for some 22 years. Yeah, I must admit, I've always thought of it as right-wing. I didn't, didn't realise it started off as mm. left-wing. In, in the 1975 referendum on Britain continuing membership of the European Economic Community, it advocated a vote to stay in the common market, though by the late 1980s it had become extremely Eurosceptic. And just as to back up what you know what you said before, with the last comment about it starting off as being a Labour-supporting newspaper, it was pro-Europe, and you can't imagine that now. No. This newspaper has so become synonymous with right-wing politics in the United Kingdom, and dare I say, with English nationalism and English politics, that it, you know it kind of really belies its its roots. And when you go back and research it, you're like, eh? They they, they said what initially? Anyway, uh, the Sun overtook Daily Mirror's circulation in 1978 to become the largest selling newspaper in the UK. The Sun was extremely profitable and this enabled Rupert Murdoch to expand his operations to the United States in 1973. So Fox News and all of that over here, we've got the Sun to thank for, David. Well, is that right? Yeah. The Fox News is a result of the Sun. Rupert Murdoch first expanded his operations into the United States from 1973. That's what gives him a toehold because the sun is just so profitable. He completely turned it around in terms of it being this loss-making entity and within four years it's making money hand over fist. Well, good Lord. I mean, I haven't heard any good things about Fox News. Don't know much about it, to be honest, but um, everything I've read about it... There's nothing much to be said about it. Anyway, moving swiftly on, Thatcher years. (laughs) And this is kind of like peak sun, really, the Thatcher years. In 1979, the newspaper endorsed Margaret Thatcher in that year's general election with the headline, Vote Tory This Time. Uh, The paper was to become her most vocal of supporters in the media during her tenure in power. This was to set the tone for the 1980s in England politically and economically. Always with an eye on marketing, it introduced Bingo in 1981 right. and dropped by two pence its cover price. And also 1981 is significant because it unveiled its new editor, Kelvin McKenzie, right. who said that the paper would become more outrageous, opinionated and irreverent than ever anything else that had been produced in England. Get into the sun and shape up for spring with Olympic athlete Bruce Tullow in Keep Fit Fever in the sun. Mr. Churchill, you're drunk. Mrs. Braddock, you're ugly. But in the morning, I shall be sober. Don't miss the all-time great insults in the sun. There's a riot of fabulous new girls on page three. Meet Stephanie, Tina, Boney and Kim. What's Britain's best buy in the sun? And get the sun from Marlon Brando. There's an amazing peep into the island hideaway of this sulky superstar. And Mary Whitehouse, Saint or Censor, prepare for big surprises as she talks to the sun. Super sexy speed ace Barry Sheen. I'll tell you how to get more out of your bike in the sun. Plus win a Cortina, win lunch in a nuclear sub at the bottom of the sea, win fabulous health farm holidays and keep fit fans. 50 tracksuits must be won. Plus all kinds of training gear. All in your brighter, bouncier sun this week. The Falklands War in 1982 
saw the Sun to be an ardent supporter of that conflict, with its coverage capturing the zeitgeist. It was jingoistic and xenophobic, and ultimately triumphalist. The front page of the Sun, which was the 4th of May following the torpedoing of the General Belgrano, was quite simply gotcha. It's one of the most memorable English newspaper headlines of all time. The Sun claimed to have sponsored a British missile that was used in the conflict with the immortal headline, Stick this up, your yunta. Gosh, I do remember that actually, yeah, I must admit. Yeah. I remember the gotcha, I remember the uh, stick this up, your yunta. That is the thing about the Sun. They had brilliantly simple headlines. They were utterly fantastic, but they were good, which belied a deep intelligence and a great way of writing, which you could kind of you could kind of ignore or not even see when reading some of the content actually of of the paper. Well, I mean, now, I, I think... absolutely hated the Sun as I hated most media, but the um, actually when you read it, uh, they are very good copywriters. When you you can read. You can get most of your article from the first paragraph. They have a structure. Um, mm. And you can read the story from their subheads. So next time you pick up the sun, you know, to look at the, obviously the page three. Is the page three still there? It's not. Yeah, I'm but... glad to hear it. Uh, we pick up your, your sun next time. Pick a story, one of the main uh, items, and just read the subheads. The subheads will tell you what's in the paragraph below it. And the subheads mm. together will tell you the story. Very, it is a very structured writing style. Mm-hmm. And a, a, a writing style that by 1982 was being mocked as such. Private Eye lampooned the paper's kind of jingoistic coverage of the Falklands War, most memorably with a mock sun headline that said, Kill an RG, win a Metro. <laughs> to which... And a metro was uh, was an old uh, an old car at the time, which you could buy. To which Kelvin Mackenzie jokingly said, "Why didn't we think of that?" <laughs> they were utterly shameless, weren't they? I mean, there was almost no point getting upset with them, much as I hated it, because mm. you know every time you reacted to it, it's like social media now. Actually, you know whatever bullshit you see on Twitter, there's absolutely no point arguing with it. The only thing to do is to ignore it. The only thing that will have any impact on things like The Sun, is not to buy it. Well, The Sun starts off being this Labour-supporting newspaper. Throughout the 1980s, it was ruthlessly anti-Labour. During the election of 1983, The Sun ran a front-page featuring an unflattering photograph of the then Labour leader, Michael Foote, then aged almost 70, alongside the headline, Do you really want this old fool to run Britain? And it made frequent scathing attacks on what the paper called the loony left element within the Labour Party. Uh, During the miners' strike of 1984-85, the paper supported the police and the Thatcher government against the striking NUM miners. And in particular, had venom for its then leader and president, Arthur Scargill. The paper ran a front page with the headline, Mine Führer and a photograph of Scargill with his hand in the air, as if giving a Nazi salute. Well, it is an outrage, isn't it? One of the the incredible things about that whole uh, dispute was that Arthur Scargill kept on saying there is a dossier to close down the mining industry. And the government at the time said, absolutely not, absolutely not. 
And he was absolutely right. Everything he said came to pass and actually was government policy to close down the whole mining industry. And he said, we're going to have cities, we're going to have towns bereft of industry. Um, that's the reason why we're fighting for this. And he said there is still vi- viability within coal. Can I just, can I just note that you've segued into our Margaret Thatcher episode? These Seamlessly. two do go hand in hand. They do go hand in hand because, as I said um, about uh, five, ten minutes ago, that the Sun newspaper was Margaret Thatcher's most vociferous uh, well of support throughout the whole 1980s. It never wavered from the side of Thatcher and Thatcherism. The extraordinary thing, of course, is how many right-wing papers we have. Well, that's something which I'm going to go to come on to mention later. And right-wing commentators always say that the UK has a balanced press in terms of left and right, and it's nothing like it at all. It's not true in terms of its newspapers. No, no, no. And there's uh, statistical evidence, which I'll bring up later. But the 1980s, as well as uh, the newspaper being an ardent supporter of Thatch, the paper had an affinity with ridiculous uh, celebrity storylines. And one of the famous headlines is, Freddie Star ate my hamster. Yes. Was that the sun? It, it's the sun. I always thought that was the screws of the world. No, no, no. That, that, is, that is the sun. Freddie Star sun, ate sir. my hamster. Now, Freddie Star was a somewhat delicious. Did Freddie Star actually eat the hamster? No, no, no. Did no. he? I wouldn't but quite it was put a, it past Freddie, actually. Well, this is the thing. It kind of, If anybody's going to eat, eat an hamster, <laughs> eat a hamster, it's going to be Ozzy Osbourne yeah. or Freddie Star. It's going to be one or the other. <laughs> but this was a headline on the 13th of March in 1986. The paper's reputation for running sensationalistic stories with questionable veracity you know, it was kind of cemented in English minds by then. The story was invented by PR man Max Clifford. Starr had to be persuaded that the apparent revelation would not damage his career. The attention actually um, helped to revive his career, though. And Starr wrote some 20 years afterwards that the incident was a complete fabrication. I've never eaten or even nibbled a live hamster, gerbil, <laughs> guinea pig, oh, mouse, shrew. Nobody's going to believe that. I mean, who hasn't nibbled a hamster? <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's just wonderful. This quote is so wonderful. The way he's, he's, he just goes through all these small rodents. So let's just do this again. <laughs> I've never, ever eaten or even nibbled a live hamster, gerbil, guinea pig, mouse, <laughs> shrew, vole, or any other small mammal. The only thing he's missing is a rat. So maybe he may maybe <laughs> start ate start my rat. rat. Yeah. As I said, like the 1980s, there's this um, kind of symbiotic relationship between celebrity news and, um, and the Sun newspaper. And in lots of ways, it's a precursor to the, what the Daily Mail does now. But fueled by then-editor Kelvin McKenzie's preoccupation with celebrity stories, the Sun kind of insinuated and spread rumours about the sexual orientation of famous people. Uh, the Sun ran a series of false stories about the pop musician Elton John. Elton John received a one million out-of-court settlement because of the, these lies, which at that point was the largest damages ever paid in British history. And the paper was weirdly anti-gay in the 1980s is something we'll come back to, to just as we kind of wrap this up it ran articles about the poops of pop u.s gay blood plague killing three in britain and in 1989 even ran a headline that straight sex cannot give you aids 
1990, the Press Council adjudicated against the Sun and columnist Gary Bushell for the use of the derogatory term about gays. This is all like the 1980s. It, it hates gay people, it's pro-Thatcher, and it's extremely jingoistic. The Hillsborough football stadium disaster in Sheffield in April 1989 was to prove a long-running PR and sales disaster for the newspaper that still lingers on to this day. The paper later admitted that it was the most terrible blunder in its history. So in 1989, on that fateful day on the 15th of April, some 96 people died as the result of injuries caused by police negligence whilst they were trying to watch a football match. The next day, under the headline, The Truth, the paper printed allegations provided to them, they said, by the police and by some fans. Fans had been seen picking the pockets of the crushed victims, that others had urinated on members of the emergency services as they tried to help people who were dying in the football stadium, and that even some fans had assaulted a police constable whilst he was trying to administer the kiss of life to somebody who was dying on the pitch. The headline, The Truth, was written by Kelvin McKenzie. Uh, the editor. It's a, an occasion which has never faded, doesn't it? You know, it's um, probably never will, actually. Probably, well, I don't know, never is a big word, but uh, it was such an horrendous thing. When I was doing my research on the history of the sun, you couldn't help but keep coming back to, to this um, incident because it wasn't just the headline. It was the fact that for years, even when the truth emerged that this was police lies and cover-up, that Kelvin McKenzie still believed, say stridently, that no, those Liverpool fans at that tragedy were acting in the most heinous way. And, and what made it worse for the inhabitants of Liverpool and for Liverpool fans, this headline came out before they can even bury their dead. So that front-page headline caused outrage in Liverpool, where people knew what the truth was because they were physically there. And the paper lost three quarters of its estimated 55,000 daily sales in Merseyside, which is the county where Liverpool is, immediately. And some 30 years later, it's never recovered. Only some 12,000 newspapers are sold in, in Merseyside to this day. And Liverpoolians won't even take up the paper for free. And quite often what you saw in 1989 were people either burning copies of The Sun or just tearing it up. And people in Liverpool refer to the newspaper as the scum. Yeah, I mean, the shame in a way, I mean, that was just an, an appalling occasion. It's a shame that it took that for us to realise just what a horrid thing it is. Mm. Um, you know, it's uh, in the end, you get the kind of get the press you deserve. And I suppose people took the attitude that the Sun wasn't really a newspaper. And it's a bit like the News of the World in that way. Um, or the Sunday Support. Um, mm. That it wasn't a newspaper, really. You didn't read it for the news. You read it for a bunch of outrageous um, articles. Um, but nonetheless, think, you know, just selling, you know, what we call fake news these days. Well, if we put aside specifically this headline and the accompanying news story, what the Sun, what Kelvin McKenzie would say they wanted to do is to put fun into the news it made everything entertaining yeah. that's what it did you know as opposed to the daily mirror which had john pilger as a reporter still on its books at the time that did investigative journalism to uncover social injustice 
at home and abroad. The sun was always about fun. That's fundamentally it. Though, with some great journalists. But this is really significant because the Sun newspaper lost many millions of pounds in revenue and sales uh, from the boycott on Merseyside. Cost News International, and this is in 1989 yeah. terms, Dave. And this number is staggering approximately 15 million pounds per month has been lost because of uh, that boycott in Merseyside. It's one of the longest and most successful boycotts the UK has ever seen. The boycott showed consumer power, strengthened a city, and aided its battle for truth and justice. And think about that for some 30 years, they've lost. Fifteen million pounds yeah. a month because of it. Amazing, it's yeah. utterly staggering. Utterly staggering. And what made this worse for the people of Merseyside was Kelvin McKenzie, as I said before, being resolute in defending that headline. There was a good reason that the people of Liverpool fought this and said no, this did not happen because there was uh, they had to battle for an inquiry. And the government said, no, no, no. This went on for some 20 odd years before there was an independent Hillsborough panel that reported in the September of 2012 that there was a a verdict of unlawful killing. And then actually the South Yorkshire police had covered up their own negligence that they'd kept the doors open and allowed fans to come in continuously, then crushing the fans right at the front. This was all a police cover-up. So, at and, what point did the Sun um, apologise? They did at one. They did eventually apologise, didn't they? Was that yeah. after the inquiry had? Um... Well, I, I discovered that quite soon afterwards, Kelvin McKenzie actually did call then Liverpool manager Kenny Dalgleish and said, "Kenny, what can we do to correct this situation?" Within right. a year or so after the tragedy, when they were still saying in the paper that the people of Liverpool had urinated on the emergency services. Just outrageous things to say. Kelvin McKenzie rang Kenny Dalglish, in which Dalglish responded, you know that big headline, The Truth? All you have to do is put, we lied in the same size, then you might be all right. To which McKenzie said to Dalglish that he couldn't. Dalglish replied, I can't help you then. Now, Just to wrap this up, after the uh, report in 2012, The Sun apologised on its front page under the headline The Real Truth. And they said, it's a version of events that 23 years ago The Sun went along with. And for that, we're deeply ashamed and profoundly sorry. We've cooperated fully with the Hillsborough Independent Panel. We will reflect on our deep sense of shame. And again, this wasn't just a headline, but this went to go and bolster the criminal behaviour of the police in trying to cover up their own negligence. And that's in part why people were so angry. It wasn't just the original headline. It was the fact that this was the official line of, in effect, the government through the Sun newspaper, which held up an independent inquiry uh, for some three decades. Anyway, let's just quickly start to, to wound this up. By the 1990s, um, the Sun is completely in bed with the Tory party. One of their famous headlines is, It's the Sun What Won It, which was the front page of the Sun in April 1992 of the Conservatives won the 1992 election. That headline 
is regularly mentioned in debates about the media influence in mm. British politics. Incredibly, incredibly kind of like totemic uh, headline that it's the son what won it. And as an observer, is it as I mean, you, obviously, circulations have fallen massively since then. Mm, well, papers still as influential as they were? Between 1994 and 1996, the Sun's circulation peaked. Its highest average sale in the week ending July 16, 1994, was check this out 4.3 million. Yeah. You know, it sold a lot of newspapers. By 1997, Labour had a new leader, Tony Blair. And he had a new approach to the right-wing sun, appeasement, not confrontation. Blair immediately went on a charm offensive to make peace with the proprietor, Rupert Murdoch. At that point, Labour had the support of, to go back to your point before, 11% of the national newspaper market, in contrast to the Tories' 57%. So when the Sun newspaper came out in support of the Labour Party, in March 1997. This was a big deal. And they did that some six weeks before the general election victory, which saw the new Labour leader, Tony Blair, become the Prime Minister with a large parliamentary majority. Uh, the paper's overt anti-gay stance also came to an end round about that time. There was changing social mores. Uh, and this was kind of highlighted when Cabinet Minister Peter Mandelson was outed by Matthew Paris, who was a formerly a Sun columnist on BBC TV's Newsnight in November 1998. Misjudging the public response, the Sun's then editor, David Yelland, wrote a front-page editorial opining whether Britain was governed by a gay mafia. Three days later, the paper apologised in another editorial, saying the Sun would never again reveal a person's sexuality unless it could be defended on the grounds of overwhelming public interest. By the 2000s, the Sun is openly antagonistic towards other European nations. Well, it had been for quite some time before, particularly the French and the Germans, and then new Eastern European migrants to, to England. During the 1980s and 90s, the French and the Germans would routinely be described in copy and headlines as frogs, krauts, or even the Hun. That whole language thing has changed a lot, hasn't it? You know, you would never do that now. Again, it's one of the reasons why I just think that this newspaper, even though I never read it as a kid, you always saw it. And yes, as an eight-year-old boy, you you turn over and look at page three and, and giggle. But it is completely reflective of the last 50 years in so many ways. It's support of of Thatcher. It continued to use the language of the Second World War, Krauts and, and Huns, and people thought, some people thought, anyway, not everybody, it was all just a bit of fun. But it reflected a time, you know, it felt very loads of money in the 1980s. Yeah, it's very it, unapologetic, it, wasn't it? Yeah. At, listen, at, by, by 2010, he kind of breaks his pact to the Labour Party and goes back to supporting the Conservatives and wrote articles about broken Britain and, and controversies around crime and immigration and public service failures, which really go to where we are today. There is no more page three. As of January 2015, the then editor, Dominic Mohan, said that page three was an innocuous British institution though actually what he did was to quietly shelf it with no fanfare. 
It's no surprise that The Sun officially endorsed the Leave campaign in the British referendum to remain or to leave the European Union in 2016, considering its kind of jingoistic history and the fact that it called uh, the French frogs in headlines. Its headline, Believe in Britain, so B, then L-E-A-V-E, Believe in Britain, is iconic, though significantly the Scottish Sun and the Northern Ireland version of the Sun did not have that headline, which just goes to show again this is an English newspaper, this is an English institution. The Sun has dominated circulation figures for daily newspapers in the United Kingdom since the late 1970s, at times easily outpacing its nearest rivals, the Daily Mail and the Daily Mirror. Its sustained decline began in 2004, but that was really in line with print journalism as a whole. From 2012 to 18, it has lost more than a million copies from its daily figures. However, it still remains the largest selling, sold newspaper in the UK. David, does the Sun still have the power it once had to claim to be a reflection of English attitudes? No, but it's impossible to sell and tell the story of England since 1969 without reference to it. I give you the Sun newspaper, sir. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I always hated it. I've seen it tested the Sun. Um, I don't think I've looked at it <clears throat> for, oh, God, 10 years? I mean, I know almost nothing about it now. Uh, might say something about my life and where it's gone, I don't know. But, um, uh, you know, I find it impossible to find it a bit of fun uh, because what it talked about was so um, so vile. So, I find, you know, it's one of those things I have a sense of humour failure about. I suppose at best I can, as you say, identify that there's obviously a, a skill and expertise there. They know their... They know how to push buttons. They know how to write copy. Uh, they know how to grab attention. But it's the um, uh, it's a skill employed in support of the devil. Mm. Don't know what else to say about it, really. I mean, if we're m saying it's not going in the cabinet, it's going in the cabinet over my dead body. <laughs> Telling you that much right here and there. <laughs> but David, right? Well, these are the things that made England warts and all. And I would say this is definitely something which has made England and it's interesting that when I was talking about the Falklands War you said I'm straying into the Margaret Thatcher uh, edition or which I uh, which I penned. I think it was when we got onto Arthur Scargill actually. Oh that's it true but, but there are so many overlaps here and what this paper has done is to use things which are iconically English and do you remember I talked about uh, I think it's my second edition uh, sorry my, the second podcast that, that I did and I talked about Dunkirk being quintessentially an English phenomenon and one of the things which I used to illustrate that point was the fact that the Sun newspaper did a headline who do you EU think you are kidding Mr Cameron and we all know what it's referring to this newspaper has used English totems English icons English iconography all the way through its history to display I would say a very one note version of England well I think that's why I wouldn't put it in the in the cabinet I mean it's it might be designed despite the fact that it's as you say it's got things like the Irish sun the Scottish sun and all the rest of it even leaving that aside, it plays to um, a 
still relatively small part of um, uh, of England, even with its circulation at four million. The fact that it's done some attention-grabbing headlines, which people have been more outraged at than supportive of, doesn't make it a thing that made England or expressive mm. of England. Um, but but you, you but you can't have a publication which for thirty years has been the 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 nation's top selling newspaper and ignore it. It spoke to and still speaks to and for a very vocal English subset. Yeah, it's we might a, call a them minority of uh, English people. And a min- uh, even smaller ni- minority of uh, everywhere else it was published. So Ireland, Scotland, doesn't make it a thing that made England. David. It's not going it, in. When, when, you, when you look at English political history in the last 60 years, you can't report upon it, you can't comment on it without saying things like the 1992 headline, after it's a somewhat won it, two days later, no, sorry, two days before that, so the day of the election, they ran a had headline which was, if Kinnock wins today, will the last person to leave Britain please turn out the lights? The, these are totally landmark in terms of their political influence when we look well, back at the history. Hang on a second history. about that. I mean, the, um, the fact that the Sun newspaper has made a specious, unprovable, unproven claim that it, it and, was, and um, it's it always a... commented on when you look back at the 1992 general election. It's a little bit like uh, Nixon and Kennedy in the 1960 debate. Political scientists always say that on radio, Nixon won that debate. On TV, Kennedy won it because Kennedy was good looking and Nil- uh, Nixon was sweating. Whether it was true or not is almost by the by, but it's written into the political narrative of that election. It's like the Britain's Not Working billboard by Saatchi and Saatchi with the long queues of people lining up to do the dole. Whether it actually influenced one vote or not, or pushed the Tories over, you know, over the hill in terms of majority, is almost immaterial. It's just written into our DNA and saying, ah, 1979 election, Britain's Not Working. The sun is so encapsulated the mood of the time and people report on it thus I I mean again I'm going to argue what you're saying is quite true that they did some extremely attention grabbing headlines, some very effective um, headlines which will always remain part of that narrative because they prove a point but they didn't encapsulate the time people noticed it because it was they were very striking what you're you're making a different claim, You're, you're claiming that it embodied the the, the views and the spirit of a nation and absolutely mm. did not well you know it's interesting uh, do, doing the digging that i've done people like roy greenslade who's a very respected and a newspaper editor who i'd even forgotten even worked for the sun because roy greenslade i see this re- totally respectable um i think he's a, he edited the guardian in the end roy greenslade um, but he worked for the sun and and he says that word, he says zeitgeist. He says the sun encapsulated, definitely in the 1980s, the zeitgeist. It was the era of loads of money with Harry Enfield playing that character. It was the era of white van man. And it feels like the sun. And I, and I think it would be almost churlish to say that, that, that it doesn't really. 
when we think of the 1980s and Thatcher's transformation of the country, it goes hand in hand with the sun being her propaganda wing. It absolutely does. And as I said, first off, I'm a big lefty, but I have to give them credit where credit's due, right, that they've made an indelible mark on the psyche of the country that I was born into and that I love. And some of the headlines were just brilliant, and it's not all about politics. So when George Michael was uh, done for drugs, uh, the headline was Careless Spliffer. When Bin Laden was uh, thrown into a plastic bag, his body was thrown into a plastic bag at sea, the headline was Bin Bagged, Tony Blair, Weapon of Mass Deception. Um and, and one which I, I didn't know this one at all uh, when I was just doing, doing the research, I bumped into this. So uh, Man City, Manchester City had an Argentinian footballer called Carlos Tevez who was done, it had to serve 250 hours of community I service. I remember him, yeah. I, I presume he was driving his car too fast or something. Yeah, the headline was, don't cry for me, RG Cleaner. It's just brilliant. You know, that's brilliant. I am prepared to accept that they're good copywriters. <laughs> and that is as far as good copywriters. As far as I'm going to go, though. So, I like the fact that you're disagreeing with me. Okay. However, David, you are wrong. Huh. I'm absolutely right. I wish you were right. I wish I could agree with you. A clever, slick newspaper uh, summed up the, uh, you know, with, with at most 4 million uh, circulation represented uh, a nation. No. It represented the prevailing political mood of the time, definitely in the 1980s. Definitely in the 1980s. It backed a right-wing regime, backed it to the hilt, and you can't think of the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher et al. without thinking of the Sun newspaper in large part as well. In the 2000s, is it as powerful an organ as it used to be in the 1980s? Absolutely not. And it isn't just down to falling circulation. The nation has changed. It has changed. But even then, still, they could they could come out with some iconic headlines and, and influence British politics. You know, Tony Blair, when he came into power toadied up to Rupert Murdoch. He did. Prime Minister's toady up to newspaper editors. I mean, that's kind of what happens. That's one of the... Uh, well, you know, that's why you know, newspaper editors are part of the establishment. Um, despite what it looks like from the outside, mm. when it comes down to it, these lot talk to each other. No, no, absolutely. And, but it's much more overt in the UK than it appears to be over here in the US. In the US, it, and also over here... It appears, with the exception of maybe the New York Times and New York Post, papers over here aren't so slavish with their political adherents. They're not. And also, technically speaking, there aren't any national newspapers in, in the United States because the country's just too big. Yes, the Washington Post is default one and, and the New York Times. and So politicians don't have to run to various newspaper editors and go and get their endorsement in the way that it seems to happen in the UK. Papers, like there's, I forget what the newspaper is called in Iowa, before the Democratic uh, nominee or the Republican nominee is um, 
wins out the Iowa Sentinel, whatever the heck it's called, will say, okay, we're going to endorse this person or that. It flips from party to party in a way that United Kingdom newspaper endorsement doesn't really. Ours is much more, well, you just know this paper gives you this political line, full stop. So for the for the sun to flip from being Labour to Tory in 1974 and then in 1997 to flip to Labour is, is seismic. That in and of itself is a seismic political forward slash media occurrence. So it's churlish of you, sir, to say that it can't go in the cabinet. But I think we should let our good listeners decide... Should. I am going to remain and, churlish. And as always, they will agree with me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> actually, they probably they will. Barely ever. They barely ever, but they really should on, on well, this one. Well, if they do, that would be just wrong to agree with you. Uh, yeah. On this one. Whatever. Anyway, uh, what, fine, but I agree on. we're going to have to call it a draw and um, you know, give it, send I it over to pardon? arbitration. Okay. Well, it's not a draw at all. Uh, we're just going to have them ratify... <laughs> Uh, this very obvious statement of fact but what we should do is go and hear uh, what uh, the listeners said about the Beatles last time out well obviously before I go any further I must say welcome back to David and Royfield after their little hiatus I had been encouraging them to try to make out that it was all part of a master plan and that this was a scheduled break between season one and season two of The Things That Made England. But of course, our dear presenters are far too honourable to pull such a dastardly trick. And what a return it was. The Beatles, of course. Some have said that David has a tendency to go for the obvious choices. But there's no denying the numbers. We have got a resounding 89 votes that say yes. We had 13 grumblers who thought they were just a band. Five who thought that only Queen would stand the test of time. And then two votes each for various subcategories of fence-sitting. Speaking of stats, and not to be outdone by Royfield, I too have prepared a spreadsheet to calculate which are our listeners' favourite Beatles songs. I extracted the data from the top five lists that people shared on Facebook gave some leeway to those who felt the need to include an honourable mention or their wives' favourite song, then did some serious number crunching, and we have a tie. While My Guitar Gently Weeps and Eleanor Rigby appeared on five lists each, there was also a tie for next place between Hey Jude and Let It Be, which had three appearances apiece. But I thought the really interesting stat that came out of this exercise was that the list included 43 songs. I think that it really says something about the Beatles and the quality and quantity of their output that so many of their songs mean so much to so many of us. I particularly enjoyed Wayne's list as he included details about why each song he chose meant something to him. It certainly wasn't all a massive Beatles love-in on our Facebook group. There were some dissenting voices, chief among them, Tim. As a Liverpudlian growing up in the 60s, the Beatles were pretty much unavoidable, and he resented having their music rammed down his ears and was much more of a Stones or The Doors person. Nothing wrong with that. 
Interestingly, Catherine felt that she noted a tone of distaste from Royfield towards the Fab Four, which Royfield vehemently denied. And to be fair, Catherine, the man has got a spreadsheet, which does show a certain amount of commitment, I would say. Fortunately, J.W. restored some sanity. Both David and Royfield seem to think that Oh Bloody Bloody Da is some sort of masterpiece, but J.W. called it out as the tripe it undoubtedly is. The worst. The absolute worst. The only good thing about it is that it's the first song on the White Album, so very easy to skip. My favourite Beatles-related anecdote was from Jacqueline, who went to a Purimspiel at a synagogue with the band playing Beatles songs with a Jewish spin. You should come over to the Facebook and read all about it. But we also had a couple of what Stuart would call proper Barneys. Steve VG, not for the first time in my experience, decided to play Devil's Advocate, but didn't seem to really have his heart in it. Unlike Steeple, who started off by saying that the Beatles were not innovative and took it from there. And all of a sudden, Cliff and the Shadows came out of the woodwork. But the big one was Thomas's proposition that something about the Beatles not being English at all. I can hardly bring myself to repeat it here on air. I'm afraid you're just going to have to get onto the Facebook group to read it in all its absurdity. I warn you, though, it has got 75 replies. Actually, to be fair, it does make for quite a good read that delves into interesting questions round the point about who owns culture. Though towards the end, it does descend into a delightful bickering match between Thomas and Ben on some of the finer points of epistemology, whatever that is, My attempt to get my own Barney going, trying to pit Lennon against McCartney, got very short shrift from Peter for being specious. And then everybody seemed to concur that the best between Paul and John was actually George. Rowena and Jacob had a bit of a to and fro about how much influence the Beatles really had when compared to Black Sabbath, the Sex Pistols or Donny Osmond. Oh, Rowena... You should all be fresh from listening to one of Royfield's more left-field choices of a thing that made England, and I hope to see you all in the Facebook group to decide whether it makes it into the Cabinet or not. Well, thank you for that, listeners. Very uh, good. Well, thank you for me. dragging me through the mire of uh, you know terrible memories of the sun uh, over the last 50 years. I've managed to forget it. I've managed to put it behind me, uh, Royfield, and you, you know, opened all those old wounds. This is the most strident I've ever heard you on any topic. I mean, I'm not keen on the British media at the you, best of times. You're not even that that strident about your own kith and kin, your own family. You, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, am I married? Oh, yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we got a family. Yes, no, I, absolutely. I'm not not keen and uh, on any of them really. And uh, the sun's the worst of the bunch, really. Mm. Right, well, it's been a joy. And just before we go, folks, um, I'm just going to say this for David, because I know David means to say this. I cannot do this every week. It becomes wallpaper. You don't know what I was going to say. Oh, sorry, okay. That's a fair point. Thank you for listening uh, to the things that made England. You know what I was going to do with you? I wasn't. Oh, okay. But now you've actually just said it. You just said it. So thank you for listening uh, to the things that made England. And I tell you what you could do for us if you've got a couple of minutes. Go tell a friend. Go tell a family member uh, to listen to it too. And uh, we'll see you all again soon. Bye-bye from me.
Bye, everybody. You got me completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one wrong one out of ten. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.